You're listening to Monocle's House View, first broadcast on the 20th of December 2019 on Monocle 24. This is Monocle's House View coming up today. Лизнуть американцев в одно место? Не знаю. Правильно ли поступили или нет? Я не хочу, чтобы... A look at what is to be gleaned from Russian President Vladimir Putin's tradition of the annual EPIC press conference, the 2019 iteration of which occurred this week. Also ahead, a consideration of the gap between what the UK's Ministry of Defence is spending our money on and what it should be, and... Right, well, that's not going to work, is it? (laughs) That's what I say to you. (laughs) Cross pause. How do films as honkingly dreadful as Cats get made without someone involved in their creation noticing that they're terrible? I'm Andrew Muller. Monocle's House View starts now. And welcome to today's edition of Monocle's House View. It has become a regular highlight of this time of year. Russian President Vladimir Putin's epic press conference, at which he swats affably at a series of gentle, medium pace full tosses served up by the obliging bowlers of Russia's media, and I hope you have enjoyed hearing this cricketing metaphor as much as I enjoyed writing it. This year's press conference was lent added frisson, indeed outright piquants, by the fact that, that it occurs just a few days before Putin's celebration his 20th anniversary of power in Russia. Among those tuning in was Monocle 24's resident Russophile, Paige Reynolds, who joins me now. This is exciting, I know, for you, Paige. You've been able to turn your hobby into your job. Um, Why does Vladimir Putin do this? Does it just kind of amuse him? I think it's a good question. I think uh, the press conference is very staged. Um, Surely not. (laughs) How could it be? I think it's quite a good forum for him to uh, address pretty much all the issues in in one sort of, I was going to say condensed, but it's not brief, Andrew. It's about four hours long. Um, And I think it enables him to be incredibly well prepared. Um, You know, there are uh, suggestions that some of the journalists in there um, who are asking questions might have been told what questions to ask. Again, I'm glad I'm sitting down. Um, Yeah, nothing new there. But he does have this, uh, when you watch it, he does. He's, he's very good at it. He's very good at fielding these kind of questions, even the difficult questions. He'll sort of chuck a couple of jokes in there. He's often quite a, sort of like playful and flirtatious with the, the women <laughs> journalists, which is just kind of awful to watch. Um, but... Yeah, I mean, he addresses all kind of issues, you know, from very local issues, you know, sort of uh, very like uh, local politics in sort of Siberia to to very big questions, nuclear deterrence, uh, you know, foreign uh, policy moves. Um, and I think it just I think it actually sort of bolsters his his public opinion. See, I'm interested in this thing of of Putin's humour. Unlike you, I do not have the advantage of speaking Russian, so it is possible that some of his jokes may lose something in the translation. But what do we learn is Putin's idea of a genuinely good gag? Because you can, of course, tell an awful lot about a person by what they find amusing. Indeed. I mean, I think... 
I think he likes to play on this idea that he is seen as this kind of uh, omnipresent kind of like villain, I guess. He, he in, kind in, of in enjoys the, the whole Doctor Evil thing, I doesn't think, he? I think he does. And this idea that his power is sort of like, uh, you know, not checked. I mean, there's sort of, a, a, I think, a clip from a few years ago when a journalist is asking him about, you know, oh, is he going to, um, what does he think about, you know, the, going in for the next elections? And he says, well, of which country? You know, <laughs> it, it's, it's and, and I think that he uses humour almost to kind of seem sort of break up what's actually maybe like quite a serious point that someone's trying to make and it, it seems reasonably effective from from what I've seen I, I must say I have not watched every four-hour press conference for the, for the past sort of five or six years but maybe some Christmas homework one of the questions that did get raised this year and it is going to be one of the questions raised uh, over the next couple of years is the one of his future intentions he has now been in charge in Russia give or take his occasional handoffs to Dmitry Medvedev for 20 years um, the question was raised at this point about maybe having a bit of a fiddle with the Russian constitution to spare him the inconvenience of a symbolic step down to observe term limits in future do you get the sense that he does plan to just basically bang on forever? I mean, it's quite an interesting question. When, when we've had uh, sort of our Russia analysts in here, Stephen and, 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 and Mark as well, they've they've kind of hinted that actually maybe, maybe he doesn't quite want to have, you know, the the top role anymore, but sort of act as this kind of like puppeteer. So in a kind of role that's only sort of sounds like it's by name, but actually he's kind of making all the, all the moves. Uh, one quite uh what not worrying, but perhaps worrying uh, thing that was brought up was Belarus and Russia's relationship mm-hmm. with Belarus, um, in which he has very much hinted at closer ties and perhaps even sort of uh, initial discussions about a union state. And a lot of people are saying, well, if this does actually come to fruition, that would enable Putin to stay on because suddenly you have an, a new country, as it were, a new, a new union that's, that's being created. So I think Belarus is going to be something we're going to be watching for, I think, in 2020. Paige Reynolds, thank you for joining us. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Andrew Muller. The UK is still trying to figure out what its new government has in store for it. One department that Prime Minister Boris Johnson seems intent on taking a long, hard look at is defence, which is in the UK, as in all countries, a department capable of flushing sensational quantities of money for often nebulous returns. The MOD did receive a 2.6% bump in spending this year, but is nevertheless, according to earlier reports, gawping into what has been described as a £7 billion black hole. Earlier, I spoke to Robert Fox, defence editor of The Evening Standard, and Raffaello Pantucci, senior associate fellow at RUSI. I started by asking how seriously we should take Defence Secretary Ben Wallace's suggestions that the military needed to cut its cloth in accordance with available resources. Well, they all say this, don't they? <laughs> they, they come in and they say, unless they're, they're uh, uh, you, you know, that they're, they're often the former service people who become uh, secretary, people like uh, Penny Morden, the predecessor, that they're a bit more sentimental about it. But Ben Wallace is a former officer too. They know from the inside that things go terribly, terribly wrong 
and somehow, uh, I don't know what Raffaella would say, because he, he, he looks at this as much as I do, these things go backwards and forwards. It's policymaking that has been so weak in the Ministry of Defence. And in the worldly, yes, it is quite a high spender. But what happens is that there's an awful, there's also, you know, in the French legal sense, there's almost a criminal conversation, a collusion between ministers and their officials who have been very bad of late in in, in experience. It's not a very good iteration of senior civil servants we've had over the past 10 years. And they keep changing their mind. And I'll just say very quickly, they change their mind in the wrong direction. They have changed the spec on these two big aircraft carriers, which are big by world standards. They're about 70,000 tonnes. They change the spec in about three very precise and expensive ways in about five or six years, for example. (laughs) They've bought a plane which is almost too expensive for the Americans who build it. They bought uh, six or seven hunter-killer submarines. They've launched three. They're supposed to be operational, and they've decided they're not fit for purpose for the 21st century, so they're changing the spec all over again. And, you know, the the trouble is that news editors, who can blame them, poor dears, they say, ho-hum, it's the Ministry of Defence, it's up to its tricks again. Uh, Well, Rafael, Kind of is, though. I mean, the Ministry of Defence is far from alone among government departments of finding new and exciting ways to waste colossal quantities of our money. But as Robert correctly points out, when the Ministry of Defence wastes money, they waste it on big, picturesque, unmissable, unhideable things. Has anybody anywhere ever yet cracked the secret of how to stop a Department of Defence from doing this? I suspect not, to be honest with you, because I think it's a very easy uh, narrative for uh, the Ministry of Defence and security agency, security institutions in general to basically get what they want from ministers. Because, because it's very they, easy they, they for just them come to back out. and say, well, what price can you put on national security? Well, they can go give a speech about the menaces that they see around the world. And, you know, there are real menaces around the world. So it's not like they're making problems up. But, you know, and it's very easy to gin it up. You go and say to a young politician, ah, dear boy, <laughs> it's usually dear. Yeah, boy, I'm afraid exactly. you don't really like what it is to face the Taliban or whatever, whatever, and they get away with murder. Uh, Fiscal Rob- murder, that <laughs> is. Yeah. Robert, on the subject of those threats, which Raffaello does correctly point out are not entirely imaginary, um, what is the UK's military, or what should the UK's military be concerned about now? What is it actually trying to protect the United Kingdom from? Well, dial me um, uh, Boris Johnson, the Prime Minister's favourite Rottweiler, uh, mm. Dom Cummings, Dominic Cummings, because he is going to do this. And here is the news, which they haven't got onto yet, which I'm breaking my paper, is there is going to be a very, very big defence review. I know there's supposed mm. to be one every five years, and they always say that. Yeah. No, but... This is going to look at foreign policy, aid, security strategy, in-depth, right across the piece. And I think that Ben Wallace is right in saying you can't go on spending these foolish amounts of money. The problem is that you have got three basic tribes and a little one in the Royal Mm. Marines, Mm. and the tribes still do not, by that I mean Army, Navy and Air Force, still do not really talk to each other. And if they talk to each other, it's to agree to disagree. Mm. All that really has to, to stop. Cummings has got it in for the aircraft carriers because they are very, very expensive indeed. The RAF bought a hugely expensive reconnaissance aircraft, the P-8, absolutely top of the range. They really can't afford it. Mm. But the bit that's missing is 
we haven't got the men and women to do it all. But the, the other moment. problem is, I think, the, yeah, the, the point that was alluded to, and I think you're very right to pick up on it, is this idea of this big strategy. You know, yeah. the idea of what is this all stitching together? Because I think one mm. of the points that's made is that you look at a country like Russia, which spends less on defence, you know, more proportionally, but they seem to get a lot more bang for their buck. You know, their soldiers don't complain Absolutely. in the same way about ours. And so the real dilemma is, why is it that our army can't do what these other ones purport to do? And yes, we have bigger ticket items, and, you know, we have a big uh, nuclear deterrent, and yeah. these things which are incredibly expensive, big ticket items. Too, but yeah. none of it is all stitched together. And I think this is what's quite interesting that might come out of the sort of new government shakeup and maybe they'll finally be able to pull it through. Is this idea of trying to bring all of these different strands of foreign and security policy together to actually be pulling in one direction? Because at the moment, they really don't. What you're talking about within the Ministry of Defence, like each of the different services having their own little fiefdoms that they want to control, stretches out across Whitehall. You've got DFID, DIT, Foreign and Commonwealth Office, all these ministries which are involved, engaged around the world. And it's not clear that they're all pulling in the same direction all the time. Indeed, think of your country, you see, Australia. Mm. They need a national security strategy, mm. which they've paid lip service to. This is where I'm on tricky ground, because I work for a former Chancellor of the Exchequer, who thought he was the bee's knees at this kind of, this kind <laughs> of stuff. But when Kevin Rudd did the famous white paper on where is Australia, it's something like that we really need, because typically of him, a true intellectual, he said, where does Australia sit in this world. And, you know, the UK hasn't really done that. It certainly hasn't done it since the Falklands War. It certainly hasn't done it since uh, 1989. And it's really got to do it in view of the thing. It's got a punch on the psychological nose, if it can be psychological, after Afghanistan and Iraq, which were pretty draining for the the common or garden business of military deployment and employment. Raffaello Pantucci and Robert Fox, thank you both. You're listening to Monocle's House View. Stay tuned. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Andrew Muller. If you were listening to today's edition of The Briefing, you will already have been apprised of Ben Ryland's view of the new cinematic adaptation of Cats, i.e. that it is terrible and boring. But the fact that the film is terrible and boring itself prompts an interesting question, which is how terrible and boring films actually get made. The creation of a terrible and or boring book or record requires the parting of relatively few fools from relatively little money. The creation of of a big-budget cinema calamity like Cats requires the outlay of millions of dollars and the input of hundreds of people, some of them extremely talented and famous. Why do none of them say, lads, what are we doing? This is going to totally blow goats. Well, I'm joined once again by Ben Ryland and also by Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Uh, Ben, yeah, moving aside from uh, Cats itself, on which the verdict is in, um, it's not the first big-budget calamity starring serious, talented people in cinematic history. Far from it. Why does it keep happening? There are very many answers to that question. And I think if you were to go back and look at some of the biggest, most baffling disasters in (laughs) cinema history, they would each have their own quite interesting backstory. Uh, But I was drawn to one film which I think says quite a lot about what we might be facing now, and that is the 1998 remake of Psycho. Now, this was done by the usually arthouse director Gus Van Sant. Mm. Now, 
So this was made by Universal Studios, uh, and it was it starred Anne Heche, who at the time was quite a box office draw. Indeed. It had originally uh, been meant to star Nicole Kidman. Uh, thankfully, Tom Cruise had read the script and said, Nicole, I think this might be a bad idea, and she took his <laughs> advice, luckily for her. Uh, but Psycho is, again, one of those examples of an absolutely baffling film. Why would you remake the best-known Alfred Hitchcock film? Why remake any Hitchcock film to start with? But why remake the best known one and do it shot for shot and use the exact same script Uh, and you change inexplicable things like for some reason the house is different there's a new facade built in front of the original psycho house but they use the same set that still sits as a tourist attraction at universal studios (laughs) in los angeles there are so many baffling things about that film now how did it get made well the reason is Gus Van Sant had just made Good Will Hunting. That was an enormous success. Mm. It was the film that, that starred uh, Robin Williams and Matt Damon and Ben Affleck, Minnie Driver. Uh, that was a very big movie of the 90s. And he was basically given a blank check. They said, anything you want to make next, go off and do it. It, it was it, hands off. Is it just basic? I mean, it is one of the, literally one of the older stories in the book, Hubris and Nemesis. Somebody has a big success with something. They therefore think, I can do anything. And they swiftly discover that there is, it turns out, a limit on their abilities. Perhaps. I, my suspicion, and I don't know this for sure, is that it was all a bit of a joke on Gus Van Sant's behalf. I suspect that he was looking at that and, and, and thinking, well, I find the whole Hollywood system so grotesque that if they're going to give me a blank check, I'm going to go and do the most ridiculous, absurd thing with it and get is, them back. Is that possibly a retrofitted justification? It was all a joke. I was being <laughs> ironic. I mean, it's just, it's tempting to think that Orson Welles was playing uh, similar jokes on the studio system back in the 40s and 50s as well. Uh, I mean, that's just that's just one example of how a disaster could be explained. But certainly in that in that regard, it was Universal's fault for putting too much trust in someone and for not having enough of a hands-on approach. And one does suspect that maybe Tom Hooper has suffered from similar freedom where he has become so absorbed in the creative process of making a film and so so entwined in his own little dramatic world of Cats the Musical that he's forgotten that there is the rest of the world too and they may, may not be as in tune with the very bizarre reality that he's created over the past two years. Uh, Fernando, the the reason you wanted to pile in on this discussion was the fact that some of these films, while being generally regarded at the time as a monumental calamity, uh, or should we say perhaps catastrophe, for everybody (laughs) involved, uh, do occasionally acquire a new life as either people see something in them that was not perhaps immediately apparent or or they require they acquire an amount of uh, how to put it ironic kitsch they do i mean and a classic example i mean i've been talking because i am obsessed with this film and may i say to the critics i knew that before you did you know because <laughs> when I, when i saw showgirls as a kid I was obsessed with that film for some reason which I couldn't explain at the time. Uh, and again, a, It's a bad movie, Fernando. Well, for the critics, certainly it was like one star. I think it was even worse than Cats when it comes to the reviews. And again, it, it was it, a case of, of freedom because Paul Verhoeven had a blank check after be, being so successful with Basic Instinct, right? It, it became the same sort of thing at the time, Fernando, uh, because 
you, the critics had fun laying into Showgirls. It wasn't just, this is a bad film, we need to tell you how bad it is. It was similar to what's happening now with Cats, is in that There becomes a kind of competition, doesn't there? That's right. And, and everyone was sort of piling on on top of each other. And of course, back then, everything was on paper. So it probably took place over, over weeks and months rather than, you know, Cats only comes out in cinemas today and I already feel like I've read every review under the sun. <laughs> but, but what I love about Showgirls in particular, I think, you know, the casting, the director, they, they are not saying it's a joke. I think people, they really believed they were doing like an epic erotic drama back in 95. <laughs> uh, I mean, for me, it was epic, but for the critics, I mean, it destroyed some careers as well. It absolutely uh, Elizabeth destroyed. Berkeley, which is quite sad. She's, yeah, completely, her career was completely gone. But the interesting thing, Andrew, is that in a lot of these cases, uh, with Psycho, Anne Heche had her career destroyed. Gus Van Sant moved on just fine. Uh, if we look at Showgirls, as Fernando says, uh, Elizabeth Berkley never to be heard of again. Uh, and even in The Avengers, uh, for some reason, it destroyed the career of the director, but the stars, Uma Thurman and Ray Fiennes, they went on to be completely fine. There are always casualties, but you're just never quite sure who it's going to be. Well, it remains to be seen who does emerge from the wreckage of this one. For the moment, Ben Ryland and Fernando Augusto Pacheco, thank you both very much for joining us. You are listening to Monocle's House View. Time now for our weekly look at what the last seven days have taught us. We learned this week that US President Donald Trump will react to the odium of impeachment with all the stoic, self-effacing dignity that has characterised his time in the White House. You know, you could see there was blood coming out of her eyes. Uh, blood coming out of her wherever. Trump became the third president in American history to be impeached by the House of Representatives, joining Andrew Johnson in 1868 and Bill Clinton in 1998. Whether or not Trump goes one better and gets evicted from the White House now depends on the Senate, where Trump should be pretty safe, at least if Republican senators prove as awesomely unembarrassable as Republican Congressman Barry Loudermilk. When Jesus was falsely accused of treason, Pontius Pilate gave Jesus the opportunity to face his accusers. There are, of course, several key differences between Donald J. Trump and Jesus H. Christ, but one of the more important in this context is that Jesus turned up for the inquiry. It really is hard to know what to say to the voters of Georgia's 11th Congressional District who sent Congressman Loudermilk to Washington beyond, seriously, I mean, come on. We, the we being everybody but Donald Trump, also learned that there is someone suffering a rather greater degree of what Trump might term presidential harassment than Trump himself. Former Pakistani President Pervez Musharraf was sentenced to actual death by a court in Islamabad. Musharraf wisely excused himself beyond the reach of extradition treaties to Dubai some while ago, but it is nevertheless an end to a political career brutal even by the formidable standards of Pakistani politics. Here's Christina Lam on Wednesday's Globalist. I think this is really significant because in some ways you could say, well, he's not in the country. This sentence is never going to be carried out. Does it really mean anything? But I mean, this is the first time that uh, an army chief has been charged with such a crime and ruled against. And the army in Pakistan is incredibly powerful. They've either 
run the country or, or the behind the scenes have very much uh, running things. Australians learned the hard way that there may be something to this climate change thing, despite the equivocations on the subject of Prime Minister and coal enthusiast Scott Morrison. Australia, already known as one of the world's more temperate countries, posted the two hottest days in its history. Tuesday's average of 40.9 degrees Celsius, surmounted by Wednesday's 41.9 degrees. Rare dispensation was granted to Australians to remark to each each other that the weather was warmish and remove their overcoats. Scott Morrison himself displayed his characteristic leadership on the issue and went on holiday to Hawaii. A shout-out at this point to Sydney clothier Mr Coyer, which is now selling a Hawaiian shirt emblazoned with Morrison's face and donating the profits to Australia's presently overworked volunteer firefighters. We learned for very far from the first time that for an organisation which wields unchallenged control over about a fifth of the world's population, the Chinese Communist Party can be remarkably touchy. This week, the CCP took severe umbrage with Arsenal Football Club after the Gunners' German midfielder Mesut Ozil made some remarks about China's oppression of its Uyghur people. Demonstrating China's customary sense of proportion in such circumstances, CCTV pulled Arsenal's game against Manchester City from its broadcast schedules, although it would have served as a much stiffer punishment of Arsenal if they'd shown the thing and repeated it several times a day for the next few decades, especially the first half, in which Arsenal appeared to be enacting a live-action metaphor for the career of their most famous fan, Jeremy Corbyn. Here's Brian Klaas on Monday's briefing. If we can't call out the detention of over a million people for their religion in China, in, in, in places like uh, you know in Xinjiang and, and the Uyghur Muslim minority, if we can't back, for example, the Hong Kong protests in favor of democracy as the NBA general manager of the Houston Rockets did and faced huge backlash, What's the point? I mean, this is what we're, this is what our countries are supposed to stand for globally. We learned that the parliament of Kyrgyzstan is presently debating a bill which would criminalise any and all disrespect of a particular variety of hat. The locally traditional titfa in question is called the kalpak and is made from felt and usually white with black trim and motifs. The Kalpak's protection is being considered by Kyrgyz lawmakers in the context of the country's ongoing attempts to come to terms with a scandal which erupted in 2017, when a photograph circulated online of a Kalpak being worn by a dog in Bishkek. And we learned this because the Kalpak is among the items enshrined on UNESCO's latest intangible cultural heritage list. This may, of course, result in an onerous surge in demand for Kyrgyzstan's already frantic Kalpak makers. Indeed, who wants to be a milliner? (laughs) Merry Christmas to you as well. On which subject, we learned that the estimable Christmas market of Zagreb will not be permitted to extend its three-year reign as the best Christmas market in Europe, as voted for by the kind of people who vote for this kind of thing. Here is Monocle's Balkans correspondent Guy Delaunay reporting with appropriate gravity at stark odds with his silly jumper with snowmen on it on this egregious thwarting of democracy on Thursday's briefing. And to give you an example of how important this is, 
because this isn't just saying, yeah, we've got more lights than you have. This is we're attracting more visitors than you are. So last year, for example, uh, Zagreb registered an increase of 10% in the numbers of arrivals and 15% in overnight stays. The tourist board says there are 122,000 arrivals and 231,000 odd overnight stays it's the biggest tourist event of the year in zagreb and of course you know in some places their tourism season and especially in croatia where much of it is focused around the coast um december is is, is fairly quiet time of year zagreb's done very well in making sure that people are still coming to croatia even when the, the, the sun is very far away and the sea isn't really what you want to be diving into and we learned that any dreams as might have been entertained by the non-existent citizens of the imaginary nation of Wakanda of a beneficial trade deal with the United States have been shattered. It was noted that Wakanda, an invention of Marvel Comics, home of Black Panther, was included as a placeholder joke on the tariff tracker on the website of the US Department of Agriculture. Wakanda has now been removed, which does at least reduce the chances of Donald Trump ordering airstrikes against it. With that very possibly shortly regrettable tempting of fate, for Monocle24, I'm Andrew Muller. And finally, on today's programme, a grapple with the question that will be confronting the many listeners who will be, according to inclination, preparing to either visit or flee their families for Christmas, which is how far in advance of takeoff should you report to the airport? Still with me, with bag in one hand and one foot already out the studio door, is Fernando Augusto Pacheco, and we are also joined by some unfathomable sorcery by our actual studio manager, David Stevens, who will be contributing from the other side of the thick glass. Uh, and the reason that we have uh, both Fernando and David together like this is, is is to confect a heated debate because you, Fernando, are a person who arrives early for flights and are therefore correct, whereas David is one of those weird <laughs> antisocial deviants who turns up at the last possible second. So my first question uh, is to you, David, and that question is, what is wrong with you? <laughs> So many things, but I, I don't think I'm necessarily wrong in this case. Uh, I haven't missed a flight to this day, which I think maybe contributes to why I think this is such a great idea. But, uh, I mean, air travel is the worst. It's the longest process of all. If I can shave off a few of those, uh, especially if I can shave off a few of those in the form of sleeping, uh, as as far as early morning flights go, I'm going to do it. How, how late do you leave it? So I, I, I have, the latest I've left it, I have been on the train to uh, London Stansted when uh, the one hour mark until takeoff has has um, has come up. So, so called my gate. How, how does that even work? I have a vision in my head of you literally leaping from the gantry as the as the plane reverses out towards the runway. I, I'm a I'm a naturally a fast walker anyway. So I'm I'm powering ahead of people no matter what. I I try to make everything efficient, including my walk from the train through to security but I, I mean it all goes fairly smoothly I, I, fe- I feel I'm I've got my like privilege on basically that I've never been late or uh, you know 
Mr. Flight. So. Well, we, we, we were we were talking earlier, of course, about hubris and nemesis. Mm. You, you will one day have your air travel equivalent of Cats or the remake of Psycho. <laughs> I, I'm not really sure how that metaphor necessarily transfers, but you know where I'm going with that. Mm. Uh, Fernando, you are, as I was saying earlier, an early arriver for flights and therefore correct. Uh, what do you, what, how do you spend the time once you arrive at the airport? Well, I have to say I've been getting better because I do admit uh, a few years ago, I think I was a bit extreme. Stream. One day, I think I was really anxious to go back to Brazil. I arrived, I'm not joking, I arrived, I think, eight to nine hours before the flight. Okay, that's that's quite mad. It, it was mad, but I, I think I was so, I needed to be at the airport. Of course, I couldn't check in, so I had to stay in a very, you know, drab Café Nero. I was glad, I remember it was a Saturday, so th- there were Saturday papers that I could buy on the newsstand there, and at least there's a lot of supplements, so I could, I, I had time to read, and I was all by myself. For nine hours. What what do you think is the actual correct margin? Well, it's recommended for a long-haul flight to arrive three hours before. So I think three to four, it's excellent. You know, just follow the guidelines. That's what I say. You know, I would never be late because I'd like to buy magazines. I like to toast or whatever is on offer there at the airport. Uh, you know, it, it baffles me, David's opinion, to be honest. The, 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 the trouble is, and this is where I do agree with our, our tardy colleague slightly, Fernando, is that, that airports, with very few exceptions, are just terrible and depressing mm. places. But it's a good place for observation, you know, to see how... The well, observing take... other depressed and terrible people. Yes. I mean, if you're single, you can flirt, you know, th- th- there's all sorts of things. <laughs> <laughs> This is just opening up an entire insight into a world I had not previously considered existing. Fernando and I actually flew we- together recently to Zurich on one of our business trips, and we managed to find a compromise. I don't think I, I probably meant that you arrived slightly later than you would have liked to, but it was slightly earlier than I would have liked to, and we were both unhappy, you know? We were quite happy, and I have to, and I have to tell listeners, David, do walk fast. But yeah. I do walk fast as well, so I think we're a good match. Fernando Augusto Pacheco and David Stevens, thank you both very much for joining us. Monocle's House View was produced by Tom Hall and our studio manager, who we just heard from there, was David Stevens. Coming up at 2000, a brand new edition of The Menu with Marcus Hippie. Monocle's House View will return in January, so do enjoy some of our seasonal programming and highlights of the year over the Christmas break, and have an excellent Christmas yourselves and a Happy New Year. I'm Andrew Muller. Thanks very much for listening. 